out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist, engineer, producer and songwriter. It's uh, all the way all the way from L.A. It is Scrote, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. Um, recently, 2022, had a, an amazing tour celebrating the music of David Bowie and has another particular two months lined up uh, at the end of 2023, October, into November, featuring such musicians as Adrian Ballou on guitar and also Pete Murphy on vocals and lots of other musicians as well, which you're going to find out much more about in this interview. So without any more further chat, let's get down to it. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we which gets edited out, to be honest. We then get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years, and then much more about Scrote's life and music. You're going to love it. Anyway, sit back, relax, enjoy. Well, I did, um, and that was at 16. So it's funny, I was just writing about it for something coming up, and uh, I had just started, I barely played guitar. And um, my mom's a professional singer, not anymore, but was a professional singer, uh, very learned and everything. And so I grew up playing some classical piano and writing songs. And But I was more into sports. But then at 16, I switched over, picked up a guitar and had a sort of natural affinity to it and writing things. Um, and my mom, having a jazz background, um, I naturally was inclined to go into harmony and, and jazz kind of stuff. And about two months after I started playing guitar, a guitar, a, a trumpet player from New York City who uh, was playing with a young John Schofield <laughs> had yeah. a grant to a national grant. It's called an NEA grant, National Endowment of Arts uh, here in the United States, uh, to come teach at my high school. My high school is a very musically strong, prominent school outside of Chicago. And he came in, a uh, trumpet player, and he would uh, took me under his wing. And since I'd only been playing a couple of months, and he didn't play guitar, said, oh, well, I can teach you music, and I'll give you some guitar notes from John Schofield, and you can pull some things from that. So I was kind of on my own as far as the guitar itself at first. Mm. But a extremely advanced theory right away. And I took in a record and we went record shopping, first real record shopping, got a bunch of jazz records. Then I came back one time, I go, Well, what do you think of this? And it was the first Van Halen record. Right. <laughs> and I played him it and he heard Eddie Van Halen and he said, Well, that's uh yeah, he's a good player. Um uh not very interesting note choices. And I thought, no choices. Wow, what an interesting thing about to think about. No choices. Because <laughs> you hear all the, the you know, yes. the acrobatic guitar and the groove. Eddie Van has a great groove and everything. And he goes, so here, let me play you this. And he played, heard on uh, Birds of Fire, which is the first record by Mod Vision Orchestra, um, guitar player named John McLaughlin. Yes. And I listened to it was the middle of the day, and as it was playing, 
I was kind of uh, hallucinating uh, in animation, <laughs> uh, a wife beating her head, uh, beating her husband over the head with a rolling pin in her kitchen. And uh, <laughs> I was just kind of going into this moment. And then the song got done and he said, uh, what do you think of that? You know, after me playing on Van Halen. And I turned to her and I said, I want to play the guitar the rest of my life. And I want to play just like that. <laughs> yes. Well, that, what was that track called again? Because I was desperately trying to write it down. Birds. Birds of Fire. Birds of Fire. Do check it out. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Tom I, I McLaughlin have... just coming out of, it just came out of Miles Davis electric band. And he had this wild orchestra and they tried to put him on tour opening for the monkeys. So, <laughs> which was crazy. Uh, and all these bands, but um, the music is really intense. And I heard it as uh, a mix of beauty and evil. Yes. And I thought that's that's perfection because you kind of you kind of can't have one without the other to really go to a certain place. You yes. know, it's, it's um, kind of interesting because I always remember Robert Fripp talking. I think it was around that time when Bowie and um, Tony Visconti invited him over to Berlin, the Hansel Studios. And he talked about yeah. playing some rock and roll lick. And he said, you know, you know, when I play a rock and roll lick, because it feels like you've just been fucked. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit like, oh, okay. To me, it's all about tension and release. That's a classic. I went to uh, uh, a school, music school, uh, University of North Texas, studying bebop and, you know, experimental composition. And it always comes around to tension and release to me. And so a matter of means of how you're getting there it could be through harmonic tension and then release, or it could be dynamics, or it could be by, you know, uh, technique, dramatic technique, then laying back, but it's always that push pull. And that's also what I think of that beauty and evil. If you have this kind of push pull, it's the most yeah, fast. Because I, I, to be honest, I, I was, I never got that kind of Van Halen sort of thing because I was a bit more, I don't know. I, I remember Lemmy from Motorhead talking about, and he had a similar idea. You know, it's all very dexterous, but, you know, where's the kind of, where's that kind of oomph to it? Like Ace of Spades or Bomber or Overkill, you hear that. And yeah. There's there's a lot going on in there. There's, you know, a lifetime's of work, but there's something quite driven. And the same with, you know, Jimi Hendrix, you know, hearing Purple Haze or Hey Joe or, you know, any of those songs. It just has. And then, you know, I was an indie kid in the 80s. So you heard Johnny Marr and his guitar work. And again, it, you know, it was like, this is kind of, there's something quite deep about it. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's personal and it's, it's a, it's very much working out the person. And if the person's got something has depth within them that they're kind of seeking and they, they, you know, through their music, it comes through and it's honest. And then, yeah, Van Halen, I, I think it's fun stuff and I get it in a certain way, but, um, and I enjoy, but it's never really been an influence on me um, as a guitar player, not, not in any significant way, no. but I'm, I'm influenced by jazz people and, and noise. And that's, that's really what led me to Bowie. That's, um, I, you know, I try to think about when he first came on my radar, our radar, and I, um, 
I remember Golden Ears and Fame being on the radio. And I was really, as a kid, I was just talking to my wife about this. So I was really into Earth, Wind, and Fire as far as pop acts. Earth, Wind, and Fire, uh, Jackson 5, uh, Stevie Wonder is my ultimate favorite uh, musician, and uh, stuff like that. And then I'd hear that kind of stuff, R&B and stuff like that on the radio. And then eventually, and I listen to pop radio. I like that. And then fame and golden years started turning up. And I just thought it was the weirdest, creepiest stuff. I couldn't kind of get my head around it. I was like, what the, I don't, I don't know what's going on here. You know, I'm a kid. No. <laughs> it's like, wow, wow. And then, yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. It was just kind of, I just thought it was just haunting, very haunting. And, uh, but attractive, but haunting. I just couldn't figure out what I thought of it. And then I uh, fast forward to Let's Dance coming out. I think, okay, yeah, all right. Okay, yeah, no, all right. You know, I'm in jazz school and all that. I'm like, uh, Yeah, okay, 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 kind of that. And then a girl I was dating gave me classic mixtape. You know, had XTC and all this stuff on it. My God, she must and, have loved you, mustn't she? Doing a mixtape in those days uh, is, is, is a definite Oh, romance. they were great. Yeah, and it got into uh, Life on Mars and um, Oh, You Pretty Things were on there. And I was like, wait, hey, wait a minute, who's that? What is that? There's like David Bowie. I'm like, no, wait a minute, David Bowie. Let's Dance is kind of everywhere. I'm like, no, no, who's these songs? He goes, oh, that's yes. David Bowie. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, how can that be? It doesn't sound anything. Wait, what? <laughs> and then I realized that I put fame in and golden years of Era, and I'm like, well, what's going on here? Who is this guy? You know, and then I got into scary monsters from there. And then the whole, it kind of all opened up. I got yes. into heroes. I'm like, oh, whoa, what's going on? And at that point, I was in college and, like I say, jazz and experimental music. So I never really saw a place in pop music for me as a guitar player, even as a composer, really, until Bowie. And hearing all the guitar players, Adrian and Fripp and all those guys. And then you have Carlos, R&B in there, and yeah. fun. Like, well, I can relate to that. So it all just spoke to me. I'm like, oh, that's everything that I like and what I am. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's uh, an, an interesting mix. I mean, just briefly, I mean, so your childhood, your parent, your mum was obviously, you know, the musical one in the family. Did your dad have yeah. any influence on you, or were you more of a sporting guy up to the age of 16? Um, yeah, I was uh, heavily into sports. Figured I would be a professional football player, <laughs> you know, professional running back. Loved we, we, it. All want, we all want to do that, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to retire and buy the Miami Dolphins. Um, you know, I went through growing up like wanting to be an architect, studying that. I want to be a doctor, studying that. I went through all the phases and adventures. I was like into football. But by the time I got through high school, I uh, was playing sports, all sports year round. I was so beat up. <laughs> uh, I had broken fingers multiple times. I had, because I'm pretty uh, fearless and foolish in that way. And uh had my uh, vertebrae cracked. I was almost paralyzed from the shoulders down. So that took out football, and that's what got me to play guitar. So right. I yes. 
I was actually cooked. I, I had to be very careful at a reconstructor wrist by my senior year. And then I got kicked off the football team for calling out a coach who was racist and <laughs> just yes. we're not getting along. And it's kicked it's okay. off. And I thought, okay, I'm out of here. I'm out of all this stuff. And I just started playing guitar. I looked yeah. over at the musicians in the school and they were throwing things and they're rebellious. And I thought, yeah, I want to be with those guys. <laughs> yes, I think you made a wise choice. Otherwise, you'd be in a wheelchair yeah. at the moment with Arthur. Yeah, Arthur's. I would. So, uh, you know. so what, what year did you hit 16? You know, what was just a, a rough kind of cultural, you know, in my brain. Oh. So when did you hit so 16? That, that's late, late 70s. Right. Yeah. So you were born... the 70s. Oh, okay, then. So you were probably, you were born about 1963, yeah. 65? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. 63. Yeah. So when was your first, what was your first gig you went to? What was the first concert? Which wasn't a jazz one. You probably went to a jazz one. Yeah. Too. You know, uh, uh, what I remember, oddly enough, uh, well, well, this makes a whole lot of sense, is uh, I was really into Chicago, the band Chicago. Yes. Uh, I was in the Earth, Wind & Fire, so I liked horns and big sounds and complex sounds and everything and harmonies right out of the gate and so um so i like ruth and fire love them and stevie like i said stevie wonder and uh chicago and i think the first concert i went to was chicago and the opening act was the uh, steve martin comedian nice. yes he, he um <laughs> so, he's a he's a sort of virtuoso isn't he on so he had a, a hit single called King Tut. I don't know if you remember that. It's this goofy single. And so he was out on opening for the band Chicago. So I went to that. And the next one I remember going to of all bands was Rush. Because Rush had this undercurrent of popularity. Yes. Um, and I was kind of checking them out. I didn't know how much uh, I was into him, but was checking him out. So that that was the first, like, straight-up rock concert I went to. Yeah. So when you were going through the, you know, because it's quite, you, you know, it's quite un interesting, slightly unusual, because normally people yeah. at that age get very tribal, they get very committed, and they're part of a, a kind of little musical kind of zeitgeisty moment, aren't they? You know, in, especially when you're 16, 18, you know, and at that yeah. time there was there was like, I don't know, in the UK, we had the goth scene where then we had that kind of, I suppose, new wave electronic scene. There was the indie pop yeah. scene with bands like the Smiths. You know, you 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 sort of put your sort of, you know, masks or flags to the mask, something like that. You know, you committed yeah. to something, didn't you? You dressed it, you looked it, you sort of imitated, you had the posters on the wall. But you didn't have that kind of 80s period, did you? It didn't sound like if you went... Oh, well, the 80s period, I did. So kind of... So growing up, yeah, uh, I forgot to notice, my dad's an engineer, a civil engineer. So he's very analytical, which I think influenced me as a producer. So I spent half my time producing and performing. And, uh, so, uh, but growing up, I was focused on sports. So I listened to the radio and yeah, and I had some posters on the wall, but the, really I was more R&B. Yeah. <laughs> and for some reason, I was really, it's, it's my mom really, uh, attracted to harmony, rich harmony and jazz harmony and all that. Um, but also, my, as my mom would would attest, I always had a fascination with noise. 
sheer noise. Like I would make feedback multi-track recordings. So when it came to uh, music school, my interest went into those areas. And as the 80s came on, the 80s bringing synthesizers and Eno and Bowie and New Wave, it was all about creativity and venomness. Um, I was right there. I remember hearing um, uh, King Crimson for the first time, the um, uh, Discipline album. I was walking in a record store and I heard something, the same kind of effect that Bowie had years earlier. It's like, man, what, what is that? That's really strange. And uh, they used to put records up at the counter, whatever was playing. Yeah. And I saw this red record. It was Discipline, King Crimson. I thought, wow, that's, I don't know what to think about that. And then about a week later, I was checking out Talking Heads, Remain in Light. And the solo on the Great Curve. Oh, uh, yes. That's Adrian Blue. I was, I was in jazz school and I was trying to find my way in popping music. Not heavily. I was just saying, well, how do I, how would I fit in this world? And I heard that and I'm like, that's it. Because I was studying Edgar Varez and Stravinsky and all this. So, you know, the use of noise. So here's this guitar player wailing just sounds and curving and bopping all over. There's the notes are bending and everything. I'm like, wow, that is it. That's, that's me. That's what I want to hear against a beat. Yes. And then... Quickly, I realized, well, who's that? Adrian Blue. Oh, wait a minute. I think that guy's in that other record, King Crimson. <laughs> they started to get on the Adrian Blue thing. Oh, wait a minute. He played with David Bowie. Wait a minute. What's going on here? <laughs> yes. So uh, Adrian uh, has been a huge gateway for me. Yes. Well, absolutely. Did you, I mean, at that stage, did you then sort of start looking or listening to other did you sort of focus much more on that, or did you start listening to other those bands like, I don't know, there were Sonic Youth, Big Black, the Butthole Surfers, oh, yeah. bands, bands like that who were sort of getting into sort of a lot more noise and feedback and, you know. Oh, the, yeah. The oh, form, yeah. The, the Fred, form of the song was definitely going to be changed quite radically, you know, and, and sort of the composition yeah. as well. Eisersted's uh, new button, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. Yeah, that I saw uh, all that coming up and coming out. And uh, within, uh, you know, and we were kind of, I didn't have a particular group. I had one friend who was kind of a cohort that was diving into that stuff heavily and discovering it and sharing with him. But there wasn't a scene so much around it because I was at jazz school in North Texas. And then within the jazz schools, I was in the experimental music department. And so uh, we're a bit on, we're totally on the fringe really with that. But, you know, it was all coming out and we were the uh, part of the underground and spreading the tapes and everything. You know, uh, of, you know Bauhaus, I remember Bauhaus coming up and starting you know yes all of that just hey check this out and it being so uh so uh down to earth and natural and just people handing literally handing music over to each other <laughs> yeah and that's I mean, how got, it all, 
but that was your kind of the 80s was kind of much more college because you know talking about you know the the influence yeah. of, of people like bowie i mean i sort of found it interesting because his 60s work is pretty hit and miss mostly quite miss really isn't it you know he kind of playing with different you know lineups and bands and sort of going yeah. from sort of straight r&b to then some folk kind of experience and a few little novelty things and sort of sound like anthony newley and it was kind of like yeah Sure. It was the sort of the decade where, you know, the 70s came along and then things started to shift, you know. I so I suppose I put it down to the fact that there was kind of Angie Bowie came on the scene who helped sort of direct him. And then there was Tony DeFries, this manager. And then the, Mick Ronson yeah. also appeared as well. And then the Spiders. Yeah. And there was this kind of thing. It was like the planet started to line up. But before then, you know, it was it, there was no way you could have listened to any of that material that he recorded in the 60s and thought, God, I can see this kid's going to go far. Because I always thought it was strange that some of the stuff he was releasing at the same time, there was, you know, like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Doors, Jefferson Air, yeah. the Kinks, you know, all, you know, Hendrix, all these amazing bands. And and Bowie would come out with some album that you just thought, where does that, fit? you know, that that's, that's just like, <laughs> what, what is that? I think what? so it <laughs> You don't want to be cruel, but you think, why did you bother? You know, I mean, you know, we just got Sergeant Pepper, we just got Break On Through, we got, you know, you know, I don't know, Electric Ladyland, you know, and there's this kind of rather folky, weirdy thing that just sounded a bit like Anthony Newley. And so it was kind of, yeah, yeah. but it was this kind of, for me, it was that kind of moment. I mean, perseverance, but there was definitely a, a kind of like, gosh, you've got these kind of people who've sort of started to sort of shift this kind of energy into something that is starting to be quite special. But it, I would have never betted more than £10 that he was going to make it in the 60s as, as this kind yeah. of... Yeah. I had to kind of backwards learn all that stuff. So I even, I was so heavily into sports and I remember, you know, playing piano and I remember writing songs, which looking back, I'm like, why was I writing songs? I write all this stuff. I was in the Chopin and, and figure out things, but my focus was on sports. And so I wasn't thinking about that at all. I didn't really even put the Beatles together until John Lennon was shot. I remember that night <laughs> I was told yes. and I thought I had a girlfriend and she was a big Beatle freak and I didn't think anything of it. And I thought, Oh, she's going to be really upset. And then I turned on the radio and I started hearing all the different Beatles. And I thought same thing, like this is the same band. I never knew that that was the same. And I stayed up all night hearing it and gone, Oh, wow. <laughs> and then I've been playing guitar like a couple still that was right at the beginning of me playing guitar so I've been a few months in and I hadn't even really put the Beatles together so I, <laughs> yes because obviously back. we because because you were talking right. about that that kind of your funk you know your sort of natural kind of gravitation to that funk world but then Bowie was like when he would talk about his you know getting Mick Ronson he wanted a Jeff Beck didn't he he'd often say this you know he right, wanted, right. obviously Jeff Beck was like I'm not going to go and play for David Bowie not in 1972 because <laughs> you know he's Jeff Beck and Bowie was nothing yeah. so you know it was kind of interesting so that was much more of a blues rock kind of vibe than people like Carlos uh, Carlos Alomar did you suddenly have to sort of go back and discover the world of Ronson and Beck and people like that and sort of I did it actually and that was real late well Jeff Beck I got turned on to right away blow by blow record uh um pretty early on because he was already Jeff Beck you know and so starting guitar and being electric specifically 
an electric guitarist more than just a general guitar player. Of course, I play acoustic and some classical old play stuff, but I'm, you know, very electric guitar centric. And so Jeff Beck was a natural after discovering John McLaughlin in there. Um, that was one of the first records I've, I, I got right after that Birds of Fire. Um, and so, but I didn't, Jeff Beck, that record, Blow by Blow, is a funk record. And so was the next Jeff Beck record after that, Wired. Right. Those are funk guys. And so, you know, and thinking about it now, what I tell everyone in doing Celebrating David Bowie, uh, I'm always looking for bass and drums who are funk and groove oriented because I hear David Bowie as a funk as an R&B artist, uh, even in rock days, because of his phrasing and the way a lot of the players play the rock, it's groovy. It's got yes. a groove to it in a different way. So um, I've always, uh, Angela Moore from Fishbone, we, we've done a lot of work together. Uh, we've talked about Bowie in that context. We both hear Bowie as R&B and soul artist, no matter what yes. he's doing. Yeah. We hear that. We heard it through that that lens, and so, yeah. Even Bowie now, I'm always trying to line that up. It's groovy. <laughs> well, I suppose you've you know? had on on rhythm section. You had Woody Woodmansey and Trevor Boulder in those early, quite early period, yeah. and then you, and then you sort of yeah. went into other people like Dennis Dennis Davis as well. Dennis he, Davis, huge. Who really unsung hero, you know, and that period, especially the low album, and there's a track called Be My Wife, which I still think has just got one of the oh, yeah. most amazing sounds and quality. But it is again, a, a you know, it has got that groove, and it has got that funk. And actually, I always think Station to Station again is one of, another one of those albums because it's got George Murray on bass, hasn't it? But again, it kind of builds, yeah. it has that kind of um. Yeah, it's got a groove to it, basically. Yeah, I think Bowie Bowie was the same way. He heard he wanted to hear something groovy, you know, in whatever whatever way you can get there, you know, and you can dress it up any other way. And I think that's a that's really kind of what draws me to him most. And I hear as the as the glue, it's like uh, something. Uh, it's it's flowing, it's grooving, it's funky, and then it's got a bunch of noise and melody. <laughs> yes, well, I think he's you, you know, know he, you're mixing all that up. Well, I think sometimes you know you had the old slick guitarist, or you had you know Fripp, yeah. or you had various other people, you know Reeves, Gabriel's as well. So there was yeah, yeah I suppose Earl's he, very groovy. Earl's very groovy player. You know yes. he's. He he is. He's got a good groove, you know. Well, I know he loves Keith uh, Richards quite a lot, doesn't he? So he's, you know, Keith is his. There you go. Yeah, there is his yeah. man. So just with your own sort of um, projection or your direction, then sort of that's the kind of eighties. Then what happens to you in the kind of the nineties and that that next period for your sort of musical direction and world? Well, for me, the let's say I moved to out of college. Uh, into San Francisco and uh, lo and behold, there's a whole scene going on called thrash funk. <laughs> I don't know if you know about that. And that's kind of the red hot chili peppers thing and everything. Right. And so there's a whole, 
bunch of bands like that. So I played in some of the, some stuff like that, and uh, and so you know, make making my own recordings and records and experimental stuff along the way, and uh, you know, keeping an eye on Bowie always. See what's he turning up. Yes. So uh, for me, that was kind of just that kind of exploring all those things living into and exploring in popular music and underground kind of the same thing but more the 90s more in a professional way so yes. i had my own group touring uh us and europe multiple times and things like that uh and then jumping up with other artists so it's just kind of coming out you know uh, yes. into the professional world so that's how I kind of saw the whole thing. But I was really into, um, you know, I didn't actually uh, play an actual, I played in rocking, what I'd say rocking bands, the rock, you know, like, but I didn't play in a rock band right. <laughs> really until I moved to LA in the 2000s, like a right. straight up rock band. And um, I was into Tin Machine. I was one of, I'm a rare Tin Machine fan. <laughs> <laughs> so I loved Reeves and all that stuff. And uh, I saw them live uh, three times uh, and checked them out. Then when Bowie got into the drum and bass, I was already into that kind of drum and bass scene. Yes, absolutely. Um, and doing things. Um, so seeing him jump on, he was kind of picked up on the later side of it. Um, so I took that, that in, uh, I met Bowie in, I think 97, maybe, um, at that was a, around a, the time uh, of Earthling, wasn't it? In 97, just before he did hours. Yeah. Maybe it was earlier than that. Cause it was, when did, when did Tin Machine stop? When was there? So Tin Machine would have been 19, kind of 1990, 91, I think Tin Machine was kind of, they kind of started at that period of the, yeah, sort of late they start late, uh, Yeah, I think they're like 89, the first record come out. Maybe they went for a few years, 92, 93. Um, yes. So I met Bowie in that period. Uh, at a private party in San Francisco, which I didn't know I was going to meet him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was a, uh, a interesting thing. Yeah, I was about, it was my birthday and somebody invited me, said, I have a birthday present. Uh, go down to this club and um, and uh, you have to be on the guest list I'm sending, and have an invite. I'm sending him over now. So I went to the club. I had no idea what was going on went in it's about a hundred people and it was tin machine playing and uh you know private party open bar open uh food and everything and then they played i'm like whoa <laughs> what do you know and uh it's small club and at the end reeves came out and i started talking to reeves and uh there's just a few of us and i look and I'd played at this club myself. And I look over while I'm talking to Reeves and about 30 yards away, I see Bowie coming from backstage, which is under, under, under the stage. So I see the back of him walking up the steps and I'm talking with this few people. And I think, oh, well, there's David 
Bowie over there coming at the mm-hmm. steps. And then he turns around like, and he starts coming and go, oh, David Bowie's walking right towards me. They're like, holy shit, he's coming up to here. <laughs> and it never <laughs> occurred to me <laughs> that that would happen, even though it was a small <laughs> little yes. setup. Like, oh, so introduce ourselves and, you know, just uh, hung out and people chatting. And uh, right away I thought, oh, I'm going to not talk a lot here. I'm just going to take this in. <laughs> well, absolutely. No, this is this is probably a good idea. Well, it's interesting because I, I sort of thought Tim Machine were quite good. And I, I quite like both of their albums. And I especially like the second one. Yeah. I've done an interview with both Hunt and uh, Tony separately over the you know last couple of years. And, and they're such nice guys. And I mean, amazing players. I mean, fantastic yeah. kind of. I mean, their backstory, their father, Soupy Sales, which yeah. was, you know, this famous comedian and presenter. And then their work with people like, you know, yeah, because they were with Todd, weren't they? Ron, Ron Grin. Yeah, uh, very Ron Grin and Iggy Pop. And, and then the obviously you know. Lust for Life work with David Bowie doing that kind yeah. of period and the best songs. And that, Hunt, that kind of... Speaking of drummer, Hunt, I love Hunt's playing because Hunt is a very groovy drummer. He's a jazz drummer. He loves. He he grew up with all the jazz guys, and that's how he sort of. I'm a big fan. Yeah, yeah. He's and, a uh, nut. He's he's crazy, but I I love it. Yes, well, <laughs> I know. I mean, I did an interview on Zoom. I could see his place was quite interesting. So, um, whereas Tony's place was a bit quiet and a bit more spacious and nice, but it was kind of amazing seeing him. But again, I think as an artist, you know. Bowie had done that kind of 70s. He did 10 albums in in basically 10 years. He produced several albums, you know, Lou Reed, Iggy Pop. Okay, you know, the Lou Reed one was yeah. with, you know, Mick Ronson as well. So that helped a lot. You know, he did various world tours. He did various other different characters and different shows. And he also had, you know, relationship children, you know, relocated several times, did several films as well. So he did a lot in that period. So I I kind of thing that you you know he keeps that energy going because then he obviously you know does let's dance he does another couple of albums which tonight and never let me down which aren't that amazing i mean you know he's suddenly I like quite, tonight actually. Yeah, yeah i mean it's, I, it's like got, tonight a lot. It's, I think it was a lot to do with the producer and the production and and that kind of sound that they got which wasn't quite right but yeah. you know he did two massive world tours which are fantastic and i think you know, to sort of not just give it all up and think I've had it, but to think, right, I'm going to have Tim Machine. I think it's just an amazing move. You know, I, I sort of think, you know, what the yeah. hell, you know, and he did Labyrinth as well and various other films. It's Bowie. Okay. You it's know, Bowie, just Bowie. Yeah. I mean, it seems if you look at it, the 80s, he was as busy as he was in the 70s. Yeah. I mean, he and did so much stuff, you know. So that was quite amazing. And then, you know, in the 90s, he kind of, you know, falls in love and gets this, you know, relationship, which is hugely important. And then he, you know, then he sort of starts with black tie, white noise. And then that kind of kind of experimental sound with, you know, a bit of drum and bass. And he does this kind of I like strange that. one. I, I know noise too. Yes. So um and and then outside, which has had that strange narrative. And I think, you know, it's it's a you know, it's a great period, you know. So I don't, you know, I don't knock it at all. I think it's it's just amazing that I you know, I've interviewed a lot of musicians and mostly they just go, I can't take it anymore. I'm just gonna I wanna give it up. Whereas he does keep going all the time, you know, and that is yeah, that yeah. is quite bon- bonkers and bizarre and I've spoke to a lot of people who've worked with him over those years in different bands and you know it's like constructing another band for another album 
and bringing that all together and the risk that must take of thinking you know there's these random people and now i'm going to put them together and we're going to try and make an album it's it's quite you know i can relate that to myself right now because when i do a celebrated david bowie tour every time i rethink the ensemble and all the business people are like what are you doing it's going so well like yeah but we want to refocus and keep it fresh and want to get in this great players and this and that and some stay and some come back some go you know and it's like and it uh you got the the established side of everything business side um you know people let me do whatever i want to do you know it's it's my entity but uh I, I do see them go uh, a panic. Yes, <laughs> like, right. yes, yes. Don't mess with success. Like, yeah, but the, the success is a bigger. It's a bigger thing. It's being fresh and innovative, and you know, you know. I met. I played with this exciting player, this young guy. Uh, I, I met the other day. This incredible player. I think he's available for this date. Let's get him in as a guest. <laughs> and yes. the, you know, uh, Adrian said a couple times to me. Uh, He's like, man, you are the perfect guy to do this because you think like David. <laughs> you're stirring up. You're not losing sight of what's important, but you yes. keep being passionate. You're going and you're you're motivated by the music and that, you know. So um, what was the kind of, you know, because, you know, obviously it was a traumatic moment when, you know, we found out that he passed in 2016. So up to then, you hadn't sort of had a, a Bowie band but then after 2016 did, is this when you started working on these projects of sort of putting bands together yeah well in the music how does that work or I, how did that happen i was uh i was in la and i was working and doing different things and um there's a period around the uh 2010 2010 so looking back and, and experience it all the way i went through it was and I think there's a common agreement to this. There was a moment where all the tech was coming in so heavy, the innovations with studios, uh, tours were stopped, were slowing down, and the record budgets were disappearing. Yes. Um, at one point, I was working on like five records at a time producing. And I wasn't playing live as much, which was the first time I kind of threw off balance that way. Because usually I'm pretty divided equally between playing live and so i was making records heavily i start seeing the budgets drop and i start seeing artists money for tours drop artists were going out solo or duo and all that and so i'm in the middle of la and i'm seeing all these really high-end players around running around with nothing to do i mean guys from mccartney's band sting's band you know the whole back everybody um the creme de la creme of the players and i uh by kind of a fluke someone i was working on a, a record of my own and i was thinking of working with this uh uh afro uh african bass band um and i th thought well this punk record uh, i was talking to them i go it'd be really cool to do this african beat with my punky stuff <laughs> let's let's do a show together. And how about that? And they're like, yeah, okay, that's be great. And then I got a call from venue if I wanted to do something within a few days, it was like a Wednesday and on Sunday. 
And I said, uh, okay, uh, hold on. And I called the leader, the this uh, Afrobeat group, and I said, hey, why don't we get together and just jam, you know? And we'll I'll bring a couple of my tunes, and we don't have to rehearse or anything, you know. And we could be, oh, we could do something kind of like uh, Remain in Light. The, maybe we pick a couple of grooves out there, and we'll just kind of experiment with them. Yeah. And then it got to within a few days, it got to why don't we just play that album, Remain in Light? <laughs> like, yes. okay. And we, well, that's okay. That should be a thing. Okay. And so we uh, get it. And then the day of, I realized, well, who's that? We worked out like backing vocals and kind of like, wait, who's doing the lead vocal? <laughs> They're like, you are. <laughs> I am singing David Byrne. That's no easy task. Yes. And so uh, it's like, well, we're we're in deep in it, whatever. Okay, so I printed all the lyrics and just went for it. And I know the music really well, so like, okay. So I was able to get through it. And we had a good time. Oh, you just frozen again. Wait a minute. Yes, yeah, sorry, you just mentioned. Okay. Yeah. So I have to be uh, in another state, and I recognize that a whole bunch of us who did the remaining light in Los Angeles were in. Uh, in Dallas at the same time. So we did it down there and it started to be a thing. And then uh, I was like, thought, okay, maybe we do a Bowie Berlin trilogy. We could do it at the jazz club here. And let's see, we'll take it and we'll do four songs from each record and um, we'll tie them together with uh, improv, with like structured improv. And it's kind of, and so we did that. The place was packed, went crazy. And uh, then I thought, oh, look. then I'm seeing all these players still around and they're playing and everything. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna start doing these shows. So we started doing shows of catalogs. Uh, Fela Kuti, did that of Fela Kuti music. We did, started doing Miles Davis electric period with guys who played with Miles and Chick Korea. Uh, so it was a heavy, heavy <laughs> playing situation. And yeah. we'd give the money to charity. And that went on for uh, two, three years and it picked up steam and people were talking about it uh, in other cities and it became a sort of a thing. And then it got so busy, I decided, you know, I'm going to take a year off. I need a break from this. I went and toured out US and Europe with my own records. And when I came back, I was working, I talked to Tim Lefebvre, he was a bass player on Blackstar. We had been playing a, a lot together. And I thought, uh, hey, uh, you want to, I've got a night January 10th at at the, the Blue Whale Jazz Club here in LA. Uh, a night, do you want to do Berlin Trilogy music that night? And he goes, hey, I'm in London right now. And he goes, funny, you call because I just walked into Mojo Magazine offices and they were watching us on YouTube play Berlin Trilogy at that club right. the year before. So well, that's weird. And he goes, yeah, well, uh, we're going to, I go, I got the January 10th. And he goes, well, that Bowie record, I knew that he was working on that. That was kind of, you know, not known, but I knew who was working on that. He said, uh, that's coming out January 8th. So 
let's not do Berlin trilogy music on the 10th. Cause I don't know what's going to happen with that record. Let's do something else said, okay, we'll figure it out. So I go home. I was on a, in a car. I, I get to where I was going in Houston. I tr- look up my laptop and there's a video for black star. And I thought, well, that's, that's kind of weird. This was in November of 2015. And I called him back and said, told him, I said, yeah, you know, I just saw the new Bowie video when I got to uh, where I was going. Uh, you know, there's a moment he lifts a Bible up and I could swear he's saying goodbye. How is he okay? And he's like, oh, he seemed fine to me. You know, he's older and everything, but he's good spirits. I'm like, yeah, it's very weird and everything. And so I said, well, I'll get in touch. And so uh, January 10th comes around. I wrote a bunch of music for the night. And we were playing the night he uh, it was announced he passed away. We were on stage. Uh, me and Tim Lefebvre, Mark Juliana, who played on Black Star, was there. And... Uh, on our break, that news uh, broke. We heard together, and then uh, it, you know it was like just everybody was in shock. We had to play another set. We played another set, and then on the way out, I heard uh, "Under Pressure," which you don't play in a jazz club. And I just thought, mm-hmm. boy, everything's just changed. I don't know. And I got home and. Uh, I heard on the radio, I was packing. I had to leave town the next morning, and I heard they go, yeah, Bowie had 26 studio albums. I thought, 26 studio albums? He did? I wonder how many I have. And I looked, and I had 23. (laughs) Wow. Yes. I go, okay. And I left, and then immediately I started getting notes like, uh, hey, man, you should do one of your shows, charity shows, so we can all get together and play Bowie music. And uh, I thought, man, well, that's, uh, that's a little too close to home at the moment. You know, uh, let me sit on that idea. So people kept asking. And then after I thought about it for a week, and then I thought, well, let me, I'll call Tim, see what Tim thinks. Uh, and he said, I'm all in. And then I called Gary Oldman. Uh, Cause we had done a bunch of things together. Yes. I didn't know his with david i didn't even know i was just asking him because we'd worked together and he told me and i you know and i thought oh well sorry you know sorry to bother you don't worry about it and he said no i'm all in let's do something so it really started with me gary oldman and tim lefebvre uh then put together uh you know 70 songs or 40 songs 41 songs i picked 70 musicians musicians coming and going uh, like Gary Allman and you and McGregor and Seal and um, yes. Angel Moore from Fishbone and and it was really kind of a community thing for artists and pro musicians in LA just to kind of process his death. So it was about four weeks later, and that was it. We raised ten thousand dollars at the small venue, Roxy Theater, it was sold out. And it was a really magical night. And um, uh, everyone was emotionally on the same page and hearing and playing the music. It just was something something really unique. Yes. Uh, and that was going to be it. But by the time I got home around 3 a.m., it went viral around the world. <laughs> and uh, 
thought, okay, I don't know. I was getting invites to do it elsewhere. And I talked to Gary Oldman and said, I don't, he's like, well, let's take it all over. And I said, hold on. <laughs> so uh sat on the idea, eventually decided to do an encore version in San Francisco since I used to live there. Same thing happened and then decided, okay, talked to Gary and we're like, let's expand. And uh, I thought, you know, I'll, if Adrian Blue is in, and I didn't know Adrian at the time, I'd met him a couple of times, said, you know what, I want to reach out to Adrian Blue. If Adrian Blue's in, I'm in, we'll do it. But, uh, and then I wrote Adrian cold call and he said, yes, I'm in, of course, I love David and uh, let's do it. And then I uh, wrote the estate. I knew it was going to be big. I wrote the estate and I want to make sure they were okay with it. And they said they were yeah. okay with it. And then I made a plan. I thought if nothing else, uh, this is a way to give closure to fans around the world and uh, any excess we'll give to charity. We'll raise money along the way. Yes. And, uh, you know, and then all Bowie, former Bowie band members from all eras start calling and trying to work them in and, stars from around the world uh and uh yeah it so has that been the case then that since 2016 you've sort of you've been one of the people sort of holding the baton for these kind of well I mean, quite yeah it's uh well we went i would that was gonna so like the first night i thought the second night was gonna be it and then i thought this big 2017 world tour that was gonna be it Got always getting more and more inquiry. They're like, okay, well, let me rethink it. And then some other guys, uh, uh, the Bowie alum, they wanted to go run with it. I'm like, you guys go run with it. And then they couldn't get it off the ground. And I, but at that point, I thought, okay, well, I'll keep doing it and I'll invite them back. Um, again, as long as Adrian's there, <laughs> like, because Adrian's a sincere, straight up fellow, you know like he's a rock you know and yes. uh musically and personally so uh patrons there okay so we did 2018 and then uh some of the alumni kind of went off and did an offshoot same kind of concept and everything and they went one direction we then that was kind of the sideman band and then all the kind of the artists who had like adrian angela moore and others who had their own career as an artist kind of went with me and um so that went for a while and then covid hit and then uh we'd done dates with todd rungren in iceland and then we went to south america and then Todd wanted to do the U.S. I was all the whole time. I was like, well, that'll be it. We'll do Iceland and South America. Then I'm out. Yes, <laughs> and then Todd calls and goes, let's do the U.S. I'm like, well, I cannot turn down Todd Rundgren in the U.S. <laughs> He's such a huge legend over here um, in That's a similar do. way. So doing that sort of 2017, this is when you had people like there was Mike Garson, there was Jerry, Jerry Leonard. There was um, yep. Carmen as well, wasn't there, Angelo? I mean, there's quite a lot of players who'd been with Bowie and had sort of that kind of, also that kind of... Yeah, that was... They brought them all on. We already were an existing show, 
So bringing them on, um, and that was a struggle because they wanted to do what they did with Bowie. And our show is specifically, we're not trying to be Bowie or do what Bowie did. We have our own thing we're looking at, you know, yes. um, way of presenting it and performing it. So that was a struggle. So those guys were on for 2017 and 2018. It wasn't until end of 2018, 2019, that they kind of went their own way. And and then um and that, was that was, was that quite an interesting dynamic did there was was it quite some interesting kind of conversations you had to say look they they had their a bit of an agenda i mean you know let's face it we've all had these kind of conversations where you're thinking guys you know this is let's let's listen let's try and work some that was that was there some quite animated moments oh boy there was right at the right at the beginning even in 2017 you know, but, you know, we came together and to me, it was the ship, we were the, it was already built and that's what kept it together. You know what I mean? Even though people were coming on and there were other people trying to do other stuff. So there was, everyone was trying to do their own version. And I was like, well, that's cool. Go do it. That's more power to you. That's fine. I'm, I'm sticking with this. This works. And so people to do version, the only point of contention was okay wait a minute you're taking all our wording you're selling your thing as if it was our thing that's not cool <laughs> go do your thing all, all the power to you. you have all the right i encourage you yeah you know but Adrian is like Adrian is like i'm not doing bowie without scrotes <laughs> right okay that, that was quite interesting because i know i know there's the kind of i don't know if it is like this in 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 reality or in what you experience but there seems to be the Mike Garson has has his kind of like taken his kind of not owned a bit of an ownership with the Bowie world. And then there's obviously other people who've done other bits and pieces as well. So I kind of wondered if there was a, sometimes a bit of tension of, you know, who's. Oh, like, yeah. Well, Mike really, uh, Mike straight up took our concept and sold it as his and sold it as positioned it as a state and a state thing, which it wasn't. The state will not endorse anything. Um, I was the first one to, uh, and like Adrian always says, goes, well, you built the, the whole concept of being multiple singers and the shifting show and not taking a break. That whole thing is yours. And so, and getting a state approval, he's like, you broke the market everywhere and the idea. And yeah. so. So do you, with the estate. Personally, I don't care so much, but it's kind of a slap in the face to all the people who worked on the beginning. So, yeah, but, but with the estate. I don't really care. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. Is that, do you go to, is that Coco or is that Aman or is that kind of the lawyers? Do you, is there a particular person? Yeah, yeah, there's there's one. Uh, I don't want to out the who it is, even though it's known, but there's, there's a particular one point person who is the executor of the state. And um, I always run our stuff by them and respect, you know, you know, I don't want to step on their toes. It's not about taking over. We're just a bunch of Bowie fans. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah, we're, we just want to add to the scene. We don't want to take anything away. So let us know. And um, we're fans first, even Adrian, you know, everyone who comes on our, our show is always fans first. And it's not our show is about David Bowie. It's not about Adrian Ballou. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Though, though I have, yeah. though you must it's have not been about very, me. Yeah. No, but you must have been very excited when you saw the 
film last year, Moon Age Daydream, and there's a lot of Adrian in that in that film and his kind of uh, that particular concert. And you went, mm, yeah, that's that's quite a nice endorsement. For, yeah, yeah, I was excited for Adrian. He, you know, that's good. And he, um, yeah, that's a whole. I mean, that's a cool thing about Bowie. There's so many periods. There's no one. It's obviously it's Bowie who drove the whole thing because he's the only constant, you know? Um, yes. There's he's, not anybody who's the constant. It's him. And it's his, uh, to me, I had to discover. So I had this very unique position over the last few years. Um, unwittingly just fell into this kind of thing where I've had a front seat to all these former people, players and producers and press and photographers and fans all over the world, firsthand experience of Bowie inside out. So I'm going to see there um, that I don't think anybody else could be, you know, as far as an outsider, I didn't play with Bowie. So for somebody who didn't play with Bowie, but who's a fan to be in my chair, even today, like seeing how he functioned from the inside out and being privy to conversations and personal things. Uh, I've probably seen and related to more people than anybody in the band or any, yes. any various bands or even close to us, you know, come across so many. Um, so with, the, so with, you know, having sort of realized this is a good thing, just kind of two bits here. I mean, you've got Miles Copeland who, um, Yes, who yeah. bizarrely I did an interview with a few years ago when he brought his book out, and he's got this amazing life in in music. Yeah, his early yeah. years managing Wishbone Ash when he was very young, and then um, IRS records, and then people like you know obviously the Police and REM and stuff like that. Yeah. So when did Miles sort of come onto the scene? Well, that's a good question. That's an interesting thing. So when Todd called me about doing the US. I thought, well, I cannot do that. That'd be incredible. We had a great shows uh, doing Iceland. We did a private show in LA. And the Adrian Todd together just sounded so amazing. And uh, and we kept the format the same. They'd sing about six, seven songs or whatever. And Todd would play guitar on some stuff. And so it was very ensemble, you know. And uh, then COVID hit. So like, okay, maybe that's the end of this. <laughs> I'm yes. always thinking the end of it. Like, okay, that was a fun, weird, wild ride. Okay, let's go back. And the whole time I'm releasing my own records and stuff. And it's kind of over here in my world and trying to keep going. And so maybe that's it. And we go along and then it looked like COVID was going to end. Like, So offers came up like, okay, well, let's do that Todd run now, you know. 21 no that's never going to happen uh and then it came uh and when it finally came around to i think it was in 20 let's see yeah would have been in 21 uh, <laughs> i was trying to do something like a let's dance type of tour with mm -hmm. thomas Stoll, uh involved and was talking to sheila e about playing drums and nice. putting something together and we really wanted to make a dance pop kind of Bowie pop rock and soul eighties kind of focus got shot down, down again by COVID. Then we looked, uh, then it came across. I heard that 
through other conversations about another tour going on that said, oh yeah, Miles Copeland is uh, producing that tour. I thought, Miles Copeland is producing tours? They go, yeah. Go, Who knows that? I don't think anybody knows that. <laughs> no. They go, you want to talk to him? I'm like, I don't know. Let me think about that. Then I thought about it for a while. I thought, yeah, connect us. And so we connected and they were looking for an entity like celebrating David Bowie to get involved with. And they're not putting on the show. They don't want to do the creative. They're not musicians. So they handle production and logistics and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, well, I've been doing all of this stuff with some various help in. I don't want to do a lot of that stuff. I thought, well, we don't want to do what you do. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> and so we hit it off. We've hit it off ever since. Uh, that was about a year, year and a half, maybe two years now. And we finally got, uh, we were going to do a big 75th birthday show in London. And then Omicron came up. So we had to squash that. We had a great lineup coming together to for Brixton Academy to return there. Uh, had to cancel that. And then we were able to get the run with Todd up off the ground last fall. And that went really well. And uh, we were going to do it a, a second leg in spring. Then Todd had some, um, uh, you know, some schedule conflicts with other tours. So we said, uh, well, let's still do something in spring. Who do you want to do? And I thought, Peter Murphy. And so I reached out to Peter Murphy agent. We talked about do something in 2019 and he had a heart attack uh, before we could get off the ground. And uh, so talked to Peter and he was like, yeah, I'm all in. So that's kind of where we're at, you know, putting the Peter Murphy tour together. Right. Because, because you have this massive one in the, in the autumn, we call it autumn, you call it fall, um, yeah, which obviously yeah. was very intense. And then you were just going to roll that into the spring. And then that's kind of been put back into next autumn as well. In the fall. Yeah. Cause Peter had a medical thing. And so we're like, and he's doing fine. He's doing great and everything, but they're like, you can't travel. What do you think? <laughs> right. So yes. like, all right, let's just push it to fall. We have some other things going on. So, um, like let's push it to fall. Response has been really strong, so uh, that'll be coming up, and that's that's pretty great. Peter and Adrian Ballou playing. <laughs> yes. So is it? I guess you just have to roll with it because on this one, then you know, with the previous one, you said you had Todd. This one, you haven't got Todd, but you've got Peter right. Murphy. So, so do you just think, look, we've got the poster, we've got the lineup so far, but <laughs> we'll just see. Well, no, I think the lineup and like with Todd, uh, I kind of focused on. I try to marry, I, like I said, I, I'm a producer as well. So I try to think about the artist and whatever I know about them, research more and match the material with the artist. Right. So with Todd, Adrian, Angela Moore, uh, Royston Langdon from Space Hog, uh, and myself, we had five singers and they all kind of do different things. Um, and so kind of kind of lean towards pop rock and soul with those guys with that lineup yeah. with peter coming in uh we're doing a little bit heavier show when we're focusing on a berlin trilogy and proto-punk you know ziggy era and well, some yeah, 90s 
You'd have to have Ziggy, yeah, wouldn't you, really? Because Peter, you know, yeah, yeah. done such a great version. Sure. Yeah, so so do you then get a real kick artistically, a kick of putting that kind of production together of like absolutely you get your plays and then you think right which one which songs are we going to put together and then work on how that flows for the evening yeah i told a, a good friend of mine a while ago i hadn't seen for a while and i was telling about say we're celebrating david bowie and how i put it together and this or that and it's really exciting and fun and he said well basically you're doing what you've always done i thought yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> you know, that's uh, that's what I do. So I do it on record and I do it on concert. Uh, I was doing it before celebrating David Boy. I do it with, and there's a whole artistry to to that. Yeah, that well, I, absolutely. I'm into. I take pride in, and that's why Adrian's you know sticks with me. And he says, "Well, you really care about that. It's not about ego or me. It's like I'm really trying to attend to." the show and the music and even more so than Peter and Adrian, like, well, what if we do this period of music, who could really deliver it the best we can deliver it. And then on this tour, it's the first tour without Angela Moore. Um, and I brought on instead, Eric Skirmerhorn who played with Tin Machine. <laughs> He's an old friend of mine. He's a, I've known forever. Uh, and he played with uh, the and everything, but he played with Tim Machine and Iggy Pop. And I thought Peter and Adrian and Eric Skirmerhorn and me and Royston, it's like that that really works. Then I get the grooving players, uh, Ron Jubla on saxophone. I always have him. He's an incredible saxophonist representing David's sax playing and David's interest in that sound. Yes. Ron Jubla is really kind of, you know, David. Ron Jubla to me is more David than anybody else on this whole show. Excellent. Oh, <laughs> and that's I so would interesting. Think, think of it as a fan. Think about it. And our last show, we stopped and Ron's playing solo sax. And we don't say it, but he's he's emulating some of the sax playing that David did on uh heroes and and then he kind of takes on david he's really more david to me than anyone on the whole show Ron right oh, that's but it's not said but it's him and if you think of bowie what i think he would go this show he'd look at he'd look at us and go ah my guess would he go you guys what are you doing silly whatever what are you doing you know and then he go that sax player well, that's the guy I like. I think <laughs> more than the sax more than yes. anybody. <laughs> he would appreciate everything. But so you think, a, you know. Guys. So this will be a quite a different show, a completely different show to the one in last autumn, won't it? The fall. So this. Yeah, is every be... tour is different. Yeah. Because it's a very, uh, yes, it's a very intense couple of months you got here, actually, haven't you? So um, it's going to be quite interesting. Yeah. So then, you know, just just without giving too much away, unless you do want to. I mean, so you're going to pick the Berlin trilogy, and then what else are you going to hang on this particular set list? Well, it's interesting to statement, of course, you know that's five decades of <laughs> of fan favorites and hits and. So it's a massive carving down to do a two-hour show every time. And so uh, I have a segment uh, 
for the first time, we're doing an intermission in the show for the first time ever. Um, and that is so we can set up on the second part of the show for this Berlin trilogy feature, this special right. kind of segment on that. And then, you know, the other parts of the show are lean towards Ziggy era, but we have some outside and earthling in there. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's a scatter shot of favorites and hits always, but you never know which one. Every every show I'm leaving out massive hits, you know. Yes. You but wouldn't think. But you know, you go to it and you hear you think it's hit from start to finish. And you don't even realize that all these songs weren't in it because you yeah. just can't. Well, you can't. I mean, do you do you go up to any kind of pay any sort of respect with Blackstar? Have you ever played any tracks from Blackstar? Yeah, we have. We I uh, the first year I turned down to people wanting to sing it, uh, very prominent people, um, and I thought, you know, everyone's really emotional still. That first tour was on the first year uh, by design. Uh, one year uh, after his uh, passing on his birthday and everything, the emotions were high. And I thought, no, no Black Star. Uh, it has to be just the right people. And I can only think about three people I can even think of that I'd say yes. And um, one of them I didn't think of. Uh, and I said, okay, Big Star coming on board. Tell him, well, you know, we've done about 70 songs at this point, and we could, but we can learn whatever he wants. He can do whatever you want, you know. And he goes, uh, okay, Black Star. Like, oh man, I had to say Black Star. <laughs> and it was Sting. It was Sting. I thought, oh, of course you'd say Black Star, the hardest one. So, do you want a big or small version? Big as it can be. Like, oh. So it's just like, okay, done. So I had 24-piece ensemble, strings, horns, and Sting came out. So we did one rehearsal, uh, kind of did a little bit take of our own on it. Sting was playing guitar through the first part of it. Um, he was totally amazing, totally nailed everything right out of the gate. Um, and uh, then he said, uh, yeah, what, you know, Maybe an encore do uh, Lazarus? Like, sure. <laughs> yes, that makes it really so, cool. uh, Big show in LA that people still are talking about. So we did uh, two nights, a uh, big show, multi multiple stars uh, from all over. And uh, yeah, we did that with him. And then we did, uh, in 2018, one of my favorite songs on that record, uh, which always kind of makes me emotional, is I Can't Give Everything Away. Um, I decided to try that, but we did the Nine Inch Nails version of it. Um, right. And we did that, and I had Angela Moore sing it um, his own kind of way. And uh, we did that in 2018. That was interesting. Yeah, because we, we we referenced Nine Inch Nails, we kind of did our own thing with it. Um, we did that, and then in, later that year, we did Sue um, from Black Star with full orchestra. 
and choir with Angela Moore in, uh, you know, I think it was where, oh yeah, in a, a particular outfit. And Angela really like di dives into the lyrics and what they're about and yes, really like, portray them amazing. like uh, very honestly and very, very intense on, you know, interpreting the lyrics. Yes. Well, so yeah, that was that was pretty intense <laughs> with I orchestra. Can, well, I do, I went to see the play Lazarus when it was in London, and um, you know it was kind of such an emotional experience because that kind of haunting beat and rhythm, and um, yeah, it's just you know it's just it just kind of sends a chill through you, doesn't it? Really, sort of. Yeah, look that up, record. Yeah. Look up here, I'm in heaven. You know, I've got scars that can't be seen. It's um, you know, Jesus. I mean, what sort of how do you yeah. write that, you know? And there was an EP that came out, and again, it's, you know, it's really rocking, particular EP, um, which came out a few years after that release. And um, again, you know, it was just like, God, such kind of raw kind of emotions in it. So, um, and, you know, you realise that there was somebody who, you know, knew they were dying, having, you know, writing and recording still in their last year. So it's kind of boggling, really. It's just very boggling, you know. Yeah. To turn it around. Yeah, so on that... It is, it is, dear old Donnie McClaskin. But did you, I mean, are there certain songs that you also, you talk about complicated ones, Station to Station, the 10 minute, you know, epic, which has that incredible line, if it's not the side effects of the cocaine, you know, and, you know, it's got such a drama to that bit. Do you ever play that live? Because I always think that must be a we song. We did that which... last, uh, yeah, we did that last fall. I, uh, I uh, shot it by Todd. Adrian always wanted to do it. And I thought, well, we haven't quite had the right lineup. Uh, then I thought, Todd, yeah, that'd be good. So I sent it to Todd. What about doing this? And he said, the whole damn thing? <laughs> He's like, <laughs> I thought, well, well, maybe we could do a shorter version. So I tried editing it. I was like, ah, it loses something there. And he said, uh, why don't we, what about having Angelo Moore sing the first part? big dramatic park and i'll come in with that the side of extra cocaine and so that's what we did we split it up the singer so Angela would start the whole thing we'd go through it then todd would come out yes and do it and then at the end that they were together and uh it was a lot of fun doing that it's an amazing uh, song with, with, with the other thing you know like acoustic numbers and kind of soft numbers that you know bowie did especially on that last album he did heathen and then reality you know, do you do you do much kind of acoustic kind of ballady numbers or is it we've done it? We've we did the very first show, the very first song we ever did. Um it was me on acoustic and another guy here on acoustic and a singer, a British singer named Karina Round. And it was um uh from that first record. Um, letter to Hermione. Oh, letter to Hermione. Yeah, Hermione. So uh, it was that. Um, that was the very first song we ever played, and we we did it another time. We did it with M. Griner in Iceland, actually. M. Griner oh, was on. God, M. She's so beautiful. Yeah. So we did that with her, and we've done some other ones. We've you know we've done Wild Is the Wind. Uh, numerous times all over the place um yeah we've kind of touched everything um and i i like to have that element but i generally like to keep the show 
upbeat. Um, we play theaters, the big stage with big ensembles. So I want to take advantage of that because that's a, such a rare opportunity, you know. And like I said, I like the Earth, Wind, and Fire in Chicago. So I like that big stuff. So I want to use it when the opportunity is there. But yes. I also want to use dynamic. So I'll break shows down to something. On this last one, there's a singer on board for uh, a number of shows named uh, Jeffrey Gaines. Uh, and he, very soul singer. And we did an acoustic version, which we'd done before, of Dead Man Walking. Right. Uh, with two acoustics. We did that with Gary Oldman and uh, Gail Ann Dorsey before. And um, a, f- a few times. And then we did it again last fall where we did a version with acoustic guitar. I was playing kind of what's called a uh, on guitar a um, uh, I can't think of the name of it. Um, Mellotron. It's a key, right. particular keyboard and everything. But I was doing the Mellotron sound on guitar and bass and drums, bass with uh, a bow and acoustic guitar version of Dead Man Walking. Um, so we have our moments, you know. Yes, it must be, you know, that must be quite amazing because you obviously have occasionally you know performed with the person like ava cherry which you know also had yeah it was great yeah a relationship during the the young americans period yeah we played win all over the world actually with string sections uh uh bernard fowler always did a really good job with that and uh then last year i brought on ava and we did as a duet with ava and angel moore singing win and then uh, she also went on to sing Rebel Rebel with Angelo. She's a rocker, man. She's still got it, Ava. She's still got She's it. She's great. She's, She's super amazing. fun. Yeah. <laughs> Soulful, rocking, you know. It is. I love just, it. Absolutely. It's, it's kind of a, an amazing experience. So do you feel that you're also sort of keeping the flame in one way going with, you know, David's work and in, in the sense of sort of introducing the music because obviously we can stream it we can buy the records yeah but to see to be able to still experience the live uh arena and to see it you know the music yeah is that is that sort of something that you also feel deep down is kind of important uh yeah I think we all feel that that's important and um kind of going back to what we said with Miles when he came on board and everything at that point, everyone was shut down, of course. And coming out of it, I'd got a new agency on board and kind of rebuilding it. And Miles coming on board, and I thought, okay, we've always, I've always just been fumbling forward, <laughs> trying to find a way, like looking for the end of it, yes. you know, natural and enjoying it the whole time, but thinking, oh, this will wear itself out. By the time COVID, kind of wiped everything out uh nobody was doing shows and then I hooked up with miles in this agency and i thought you know okay let's do this for real <laughs> okay let's take it on okay let's okay let's do this on purpose so uh that's where we are now purposely going out there playing the biggest bowie shows there's no one else doing it on our level 
You know, no. the, I am not doing it anymore. They they kind of ran their course. Tony Visconti, I never saw his show, but no. it, it seemed to run its course. And yes. so we're up, we're up stronger than ever and loving it more than ever. And I'm like, well, we'll just, I'm doing it. I'm yeah. doing it for a good 10 years. People love it. We're having fun. I no longer am. I was just thinking on this last tour, I'm like, I'm not even playing with respect to the other guitar players with Bowie. I'm just playing like I play every day. Yes, absolutely. But it was interesting but, what you, you said. Know, that. I was, I was fits gonna... in with Bowie anyway. So <laughs> Yes. But it was interesting. I'm just on a practical level, because I did there was Woody Woodmansey when he was doing his thing with Tony on their early period yeah. and and I sort of spoke to him and just before they were doing the tour and he said and I said how how much preparation do you do you know and he said well we'll probably get together a day or two before the first gig and we'll just go through it and that'll be it we're fine so how and I thought wow that's impressive um but obviously <laughs> they'll they'll be practicing them a bit before but he also played you know those songs decades before but how long do yeah. you take to kind of get yourselves all ready well, yeah, I think with Tony's show, too, I think they were specific about early 70s. I think they tried to shift. Once we were out there doing all kinds of stuff, I saw everybody kind of trying to shift into being inclusive of certain periods. Um, but ours, it's like I said, we are all artists doing our own thing most of the year. And so it's kind of a miracle when we can schedule it, everything buddy together. And so with that, and I'm always uh, famously overly ambitious. So um, I try to do certain arrangements and I try to dig deep and tackle difficult material in a really honest way. And so we do charts, I pass them out. We have a lot of conversations ahead of time. Um, I very specifically cast players for the for the show, and so they automatically are going in the direction of the material. And then by the time we get, we'll do some Zoom rehearsal, one on one, talk through some Zoom backup vocals. <laughs> so we're putting in time, writing yeah. charts, scribbling out charts, and then uh, putting our own time in quite a bit. And then we all want to make it our own. We're not, I'm not trying to be anybody. Nobody else is trying to be anybody. So that takes a little bit of an element. Um, and then we get together and have two or three days of full rehearsal, maybe one day with a band and two or three with a whole ensemble. Um, and walking in, everyone pretty much has everything and memorized. I think it's important to memorize everything. Yes. Uh, uh, and so, uh, so walking in, we're pretty far along. Yeah. You know, so it's, a, it's, it's a, so you have a couple, do you, would you say you have a couple of really intense days before that first day on the 10th of October? Yeah. Two or three days, you know, um, we actually might need to expand that now that it's becoming more of a legitimate effort out on the planet and everything. Uh, I think we're going to expand that to five days. I want to get production things. I'm always thinking about beyond the music. Yes. You know, how to feature this and somebody be over there and, you know, get more into it, production and lighting. I write out a whole bunch of lighting cues for the whole show and then I meet with the light, you know, 
there's all that stuff. So we want to get more time to everything and we continuously want to step up the ship. Yes, absolutely. But so, do, um, do you, I mean, you know, with everyone coming together, do you have a little bit of anxiety as well as like, God, I hope everyone has done their bit and I hope everyone's vocals good. And Oh, no. No, because I'm only picking super pros that I know are right. going to walk. They're going to do that anyway. And then I'm going to walk and talk them through it ahead of time. Even we're going to talk about that before they're even hired. So yes. picking them because they'll, I know they'll do that anyway. And then secondly, we'll talk it through to make sure we're on the same page. So coming together, no, it's just fun. And, you know, all of us, we've all been doing music on the pro level, touring and concerts for years and years and years. So uh, coming together, it's just joyous. It's fun. Yeah. You know? well, it's, like I said, well, we're it... fans first. So we get together, we're playing Bowie music. Yeah. Well, you, <laughs> I'm playing you... with it. Blue. I'm like Bowie music with Adrian Blue. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, that's is... what I started in music doing, you know, and I watch Peter getting Peter on Murphy. Like I'm going to go out and play Bowie music around the world with Peter Murphy and Adrian Blue, who are bigger Bowie fans than me. Like how can that even be? Yes. You know, like, well, absolutely. I mean, I just wonder if you well, I would imagine that that side of it, but also just that thing of like, God, have they still got the voice? Have they sort of done the rehearsing and practicing and have yeah. they, you know, that kind of slight, like looking at each other going, oh my God, the voice is gone or, you know, oh dear, that's not sounding so Well, good. there's always moments. So like somebody put up something, uh, I saw a line of Todd cracking during Life on Mars. I'm like, oh, well, sure. Go ahead pick out like 20 seconds. Todd nailed everything. He sounded great. And you pick out, he had laryngitis right. and they got right on the moment that it was like, okay, he had the realizing he's got to take time off. So he didn't play like three shows after that came back strong. Like, come on, you pick out like a minute. We just didn't, you know, how many shows they got one minute to focus on his voice cracking and him trying to push through, you know, you know, that happens, whatever that happens, to everything. Happened to well, Bowie. I went, well, when I went to see Bowie in at Glastonbury Festival in 2000, I mean, he'd had a bit of a scare with some sort of laryngitis or some issue yeah. with his throat. It was like, is he going to turn up on the Sunday night? And he did. But I could tell that there seemed to be a little bit of like, he went into wild is the wind. And it was like, okay, that sounds good. And then, <laughs> then I think he kind of was like, yeah, I've got it. It's fine. I'm going to be okay now. We can enjoy it. But yeah, there was that. I feel pretty. Mostly that doesn't happen because the level we're working on, but it does happen to everybody, whatever. Yes. I mean, Adrian went out with Sound and Vision with David. Adrian ended up singing a lot of his line, David's lines, and Adrian switching to the lower line. I mean, David switching to Adrian's lower line on the shows. People didn't even notice, you know, because yes. Adrian's a soaring singer anyway. So, but you know, Whatever it happened, it does happen. But you know, everyone's coming in, gun ho, everything learned. Uh, I've been back with Peter multiple times about stuff and before you know about performance things before. Yes. You know, well, fing fingers crossed, everyone's going to be a hundred percent fit and well. So between just then, between now and then sort of september end of september when obviously do you have other projects that you'll be doing and working on 
throughout the summer and other oh yeah well there's a couple of different things we'd have we're actually working on some other uh shows this summer that'll be announced for Subbrain david bowie and outside of that uh i'm producing a couple records um uh, once uh like a almost i don't know it's a can't describe it's kind of a children's fantasy theater piece right okay and then one is a friend of mine, a Grammy-winning world music artist uh, out of Texas. Um, it's Latin stuff and all kinds of different kind of world music things. And then I have my own record, a record that just came out called Magnificent Bastard. Be sure to check that on Spotify. Yes. Uh, came out recently. And uh, actually, I, I was listening to your uh, podcast music and enjoying that station i thought that was really great and i think uh magnificent bastard fit right in on there oh because uh, you know there's jack white elements to it and uh it's kind of coming from that angle well but yes. check it out Fantastic. And, uh, I will. Like, yeah. Um, so that I'm always putting out records and playing shows. I think we're going to do another Miles Davis show uh, of Electric Period of Miles soon, maybe even a few dates on the road. And then I'm going to start a new record of mine. And yes. Do you do? Is it two? Is it two two? The one that you brought out in the '80s that was particularly. Isn't that what no, the period that we are gonna we focus on in this is 69 to 74, right? Which is Miles when he first went to electric and he had John McLaughlin. So here you go. I uh, started with John McLaughlin inspiring me when I was 16. I'm playing his stuff <laughs> around now, too. Is that the post so, Bill uh, Evans stuff then? Uh it's before Bill Evans, the sax player. Oh no, who's the keyboard player he did on Kind of Blue? There's Bill Evans. That's Bill Evans too. There's a keyboard player, is a piano player who's a uh big legend. Then there's a saxophonist named Bill Evans, who I went to school with. Right. No, I'm thinking of the the other Bill Evans. Yeah. Yeah, it's after that. So it's 69, it's Bitches Brew era, if you're right. familiar with that. Time, you know, the <clears throat> reggae guys and uh there was a it was a really good album that he, you know Miles did during the eighties. Um, I have to revisit it. Really, I think it was called Two Two. Is it called Two Two? God, I've blown it. Oh, you froze. Oh, oh, have I froze? There, there you go. Came back. So, uh, but yeah, I can send you a couple links of some uh, some of the yeah records. do because um it's sometimes it's always good to sort of hear hear this stuff and uh, yes Two Two it was. 1986, that was the album. I remember my boss had a copy and we played it all the time. So okay, yeah. God, that's such a great cover. Anyway, yeah, do send me any links and anything. That would be fantastic. And um, yeah, so why, So it's Spotify. You, uh, it's easy to find. Do you have a Bandcamp page as well? Uh, yeah, Scrote Music. Scrote Music, there you go. Can't miss yeah. it. Scrotemusic.bandcamp.com. Uh, Magnificent Bastard is on there. There's a record... <laughs> experimental electronic duo i have at the great drummer from berlin an old friend of mine from the states uh who works with trevor horn a lot and he's gonna be out with seal still not seal and air and we do a duo uh that's pretty out there <laughs> yes 
that have a music sort of, and do, piano stuff. Do you ever sort of float through Vegas? Because I always notice all your all the places that you play, but you know, I never see Vegas. I always think, oh, that's amazing. You never go to Vegas to do any shows there. Oh yeah, yeah. We've we've played. Uh, I've played stuff there. You know, when see celebrating David Bowie. I think we did a show at Brooklyn Bowl in Vegas at one point. It's starting to all, you know, blur together. <laughs> yes, I would imagine. Now the venues, you know. Another day. Even the venues. But look, well, it, thank you ever so much for this. This has been really amazing. And just, you know, it just sounds like you've got the best kind of project and, and concept and, and sort of love of David Bowie, which is just fantastic so um like i said it started you know my first yeah, single and first love was bowie so he's always been with me ever since so um there you go a yeah culture. yeah it's definitely with david uh it's an honest effort of trying to honor him yes you know? well i think you yes you definitely do actually anyway, doing it with the realm of us you know of yes. who we are so. and uh yes keep the flame fl uh, burning that's what we say don't we will do will do yeah, and well, hopefully we'll see you over there sometime. God, that would be amazing. But yes, look, take care. Have a lovely day and um see you later. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. And that is the interview over or the end of the interview, should I say. A massive thank you to Scrote for giving me the time for that. Um, if you want to know any more information, he's got a very good Facebook page with lots of information on. And um, also, yeah, just Google. You'll find it in the, in the way. But he's also on Instagram and various other places. So you'll find out more about that tour. Anyway, this is the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 show. Also, these have all been archived interviews, that is. Uh, find those on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify. It's true, just do C86 show. There's lots of them, a load of them. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.